You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. I'm going to read to you this morning from John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I wonder what you make of the miracles of Jesus. I've heard, I'm sure you've heard of a few of them, you know, how he uh, turned water into wine or how he walked on water or how he fed 5,000 people with someone's play lunch or how he even raised someone from the dead. I mean, it's, it's quite the CV. But I wonder what you make of it. Uh, perhaps you doubt that they actually happened. In fact, perhaps you question the very idea that Jesus was a true person, as a lot of Australians who would say that. In 2021, there was a study that found that 22%, that's one in five Australians, didn't think that Jesus was a real person who actually lived. They believed that he wasn't historical. And another 29% said that they couldn't be sure about that, which is, which is actually pretty extraordinary. That means that uh, around half of Australians are not convinced that Jesus was a real person in time and history. And so if you're part of that population, then I'm sure that you uh, would question the miracles. You figure, well, they just were made up. Perhaps his disciples wanted to make him look a bit more impressive. And so they kind of created this legend about Jesus, that he was like a Marvel superhero or something. Or perhaps you're here and you do believe that the miracles of Jesus happened, but you don't really know what to do with that. Maybe you grew up with these stories, you sort of almost inherited them as you were growing up, and you haven't really thought about them that much. You're so familiar with them that you just kind of gloss over them, and you're not really sure why they're there and how they're supposed to change your life even now. Well, whether you're a sceptic or a believer, it's my hope that over the coming weeks we'll all get a better understanding of these miracles and why they're here. Today we're beginning a new series called The Seven Signs of Jesus, where we're looking at seven miracles from the life and ministry of Jesus. They're all given to us from uh, by the Apostle John, who wrote one of the Gospels, what we call a biography of Jesus. And his book is often called The Book of the Signs, because he, he shows all of these miracles of Jesus. And it's interesting, he calls them signs rather than just miracles. 
I think that's significant. See, what does a sign do? It, it points the way to something, doesn't it? It shows us which way to go. It points to something significant. It helps you to orient and understand what you're looking at. You, know, you see a little sign that says, on, this is the way to Melbourne. And so you know that that's, you're on the right path. And this little sign is pointing to the bigger reality of this city. And so that's what it is with the signs of Jesus. They point to who he is. They orient us and invite us to ponder what this guy could have been like. Anthony Salvaggio writes, like the signs in our daily lives, signs in the Bible point to something beyond themselves. When God provides a sign, he's using it to point people to an essential spiritual truth. You see, that's what John is all about. That's why he wrote down this story. He was really close to Jesus and he saw how significant this guy Jesus was and he saw, it says that all of these signs point to the meaning of this man and what he was here for. Really, some people say that John's gospel is a little bit like a legal case. You know, when you've got a legal case and you've got to build your evidence, what well, John is almost building his evidence, trying to point to the significance of this Jesus. Now, whatever you choose to do with this, it's kind of up to you, whether you choose to believe it or, or not. But either way, I'm really hoping that through this series, we'll grapple with these stories and understand more about what they're pointing to. And so if you're not a Christian and you're just exploring this, I hope that you'll get a better sense of who Jesus is. And if you are a Christian, that I hope, it's my prayer, that we'll leave this series better understanding the beauty and the truth and the relevance of Jesus for our lives. So let's see what Jesus has to show for us in this story of him turning the water into wine. The story opens with Jesus at a wedding. When I got married, it was a pretty big day. We had about 200 guests at our wedding, and then we had a big afternoon tea, and then we had a, a, a dinner at night with sort of 30, 40 family and friends. It was a big day. It was very tiring. But it was nothing compared to what people used to do in first century Israel. When they had a wedding, they went all out. It wasn't just a one-day extravaganza. It was a week-long festival, sometimes even two weeks. And it wasn't just for family and friends. It was for the whole community. And so the, the start of the wedding would be the actual wedding ceremony. It'd be pretty brief. But then after that, they would be carried through the village, through the community, in this kind of torchlight, torchlit parade, all through the community so everyone could wish them well. Everyone could say, oh, congratulations. And they'd be singing and dancing and feasting for a whole week. It was extraordinary. See, for many people, this was actually the biggest party of their lives. Uh, most people in Israel in the first century were very poor. They had were just kind of subsistence living. They were basically just living day to day. They didn't have money to save, didn't have money to, to splurge, except for this one event, the wedding. This was the day that they would give away everything. This was the time where they would just really go for it and really celebrate. So this was a beautiful moment for them. It made weddings just the, the highlight of the year, perhaps even the highlight of someone's life. So there's this real joy and expectation every time they had them. But there was also an incredible sense of pressure. You see, there was high expectations about the wedding. It could go really well or it could go really badly. And actually, there were even legal cases where people said, look, this party wasn't good enough, so I'm suing you. I mean, imagine, imagine that. You throw a party and everyone says, look, the finger food wasn't enough, so I'm suing you. So a wedding could go very right or very wrong. And as we pick up this story, it looks like it's starting to go wrong because the party hosts are running out of wine. We know this because Jesus' mother, Mary, comes up to Jesus and says, look, they're running out of wine. 
Now, we're not sure. Perhaps Mary was part of the catering team or perhaps she was one of the relatives of the couple getting married. But either way, she comes up to Jesus and says, we need to do something about this. It's kind of fascinating that she thinks this. Does she sense that Jesus is going to do a miracle? Who knows? Or perhaps she just figures you'll go, go do a Costco run, whatever it is. She figures that Jesus can fix the problem. And so she's probably a bit disappointed when Jesus says to her in verse 4, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. It sounds a little bit abrupt to us. I'll explain a little bit later on why it's not. But either way, it's almost like you sense that Mary doesn't really care. She's like, oh, look, she goes off and tells the, all the waiters, look, don't worry, he'll do what he's told, essentially. He'll do, what, do whatever he tells you. And she's proven right. Jesus notices that there's these big water jars on the property. So he says, right, fill them up. They're massive jars. They're about 20, 30 gallons each one. Six of these, 180 gallons of water. It's a lot of water. And then at some point, it turns into wine. And Jesus tells them to go and give it to the master of the feast, the wedding planner perhaps, and he's amazed by how good it tastes. See, normally when people gave their wine, it was they'd give all the best wine at the start of the wedding feast and all the when the palate was fresh and would be able to taste more stuff and then later on you just give the cheap stuff. But this is the best wine. It's incredible what Jesus has done. And we're told in verse 11 that this was his first sign and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. It had an impact on them. But what exactly did they see? What were they believing? What was the significance of this sign? As we said at the top, the signs of Jesus point to an essential spiritual truth about Jesus. So what does this sign point to? I'm going to suggest three things. The first thing it shows us is the power of Jesus. I mean, it's the most obvious lesson, isn't it? Jesus did a miracle. Something was water and it became wine. It was one thing until Jesus made it into something else. But remember, it's not just a miracle, it's a sign. It's a sign pointing us to an essential spiritual truth that Jesus is powerful. In fact, that he's so powerful because he's God. That's what John believes at the start of his gospel. John 1 verse 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's talking about Jesus here. Now, he calls Jesus the Word, which is a Greek word, logos, which basically what the philosophers of, of Greece would say, uh, it meant something like the system of reason, the, the logic that made sense of the world. As one writer puts it, he was like the ultimate explanation. That's what the logos was, the, the one that made sense of everything. And here, John is saying that Jesus is that. Jesus is the ultimate explanation of everything. Really, he's saying that Jesus is God. That's what John had come to believe, and that's what he wants us to believe. In fact, that's his whole purpose in writing. Right at the very end of his gospel, John 20, verse 30, he says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. You know, you have to go and download the special features to get those ones. But he says here, I've written these down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John wants us to read this whole story in the light of this idea that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that Jesus is God himself. That's what this sign, that's what all the signs show us 
that Jesus is God, that he's powerful because he's God. Now, you could say that about every miracle, but this particular miracle points us to the fact that Jesus is the creator. You see, a miracle like this doesn't make sense unless you're God, unless you're the creator. And if you are the creator, then it totally makes sense. I've been reading during the week about alchemy. This was kind of a, a science mixed with magic almost. It's been around for 2,000 years or longer. It's the attempt to make one thing into something else, particularly with a, a, a base kind of metal that's not very valuable and to try and make that into gold. And there was so many attempts over the decades and the centuries to try and do this. But, of course, no one could do it. You just can't do it. But Jesus could. Jesus could do anything. He can change anything into anything else because he's the creator. You see, Jesus made every single thing that there is, so he can manipulate that. He can change that. He can do whatever he wants with that. Jesus is the creator, and so he has power. And that's what we see here. If you're not a Christian, if you're just examining Jesus, I want you to grapple with the power of Jesus, that he was able to do this thing this miracle, and people saw it and testified to it and believed it. They believed that he had that power. And if you are a Christian, I want you to grapple once more with the power of Jesus. Because sometimes I think we can be a bit blasé about the miracles. We're just so used to them. We kind of heard it a thousand times and we just figure, yeah, well, of course he was able to do these things. But we need to remember that when Jesus did these miracles, The jury was still out on him. People weren't convinced at that point that he was God. It was the miracles that showed that he was. It was the miracles that were signs of his power and who he was. That's that's why John tells us these things, to show us that Jesus is God. And then secondly, he wants to show us what God is like. See, this sign shows us the power of Jesus, but it also shows us the personality of Jesus, what Jesus was actually like. You see, there's something wonderfully kind of simple about this story and common and and mundane and normal. It's Jesus at a wedding with his friends, with his disciples. And I love how Jesus just feels real in this story. He's a man with a mum. He's part of a community. They want him to come to their wedding. He got an invite. He was brought along. These people knew him. Perhaps they sat around in his carpenter shop talking about politics or something, talking about the weather. They knew Jesus. Jesus was a part of their lives. And I just think that's wonderful because it points to the wonderful truth that Jesus, God, is truly down to earth, both literally and figuratively. That's what we believe as Christians. John 1 verse 14 says the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, that the word God himself took on flesh and then walked among us, that the creator stepped into his creation, that the author of the story wrote himself into the story. That's what we believe. It's extraordinary and it's wonderful. See, for the Greeks, the idea of the logos was was impersonal and distant. It was logic 
But you couldn't see it, you couldn't touch it. But it's different here with Jesus. He's right here. His logic on fire. His logic in flesh. And you could say the same about other religions. So in pantheism, for instance, God is everywhere, but he's never here. In everything, but never right in front of you. Or the Muslim. God is too great to appear. There's no way that Allah would come to a wedding. He wouldn't deign to come to a wedding. It's too far above him, but not in Christianity. In Christianity, we believe that God himself is truly down to earth, that he stepped into this world and he went to a wedding because he wants to be there. So when you look at the stories of Jesus, know that you're looking at the personality of God. We're seeing what God is like. So one of the things that I see here is just the kindness of God. See, when you consider that this is his first public miracle of his ministry, it's kind of a little bit surprising that he did this. We're going to hear later on how he could calm the waves or he could raise people from the dead. You'd think that that would be the way he'd start, that that would set the tone. But no, he starts with doing this little miracle just helping someone with their catering needs. And to me, that shows us how kind God is. Jesus cares about the little things in our lives. He cares about the big things, the crises, the difficulties, the troubling moments, but he also just cares about the awkward moments when you've run out of food to serve to someone. Jesus cares. And then more than that, it shows us that Jesus cares about our joy. I've done a lot of weddings, uh, preached at 40 or so weddings or something. It's always a great honour. It's a great privilege to do it. But it's also a little bit of pressure. See, there's only a little handful of passages that people pick. And so I go through every wedding kind of just recycling this little list of sermons that I've done for each of these weddings. And I hope that the guest list doesn't overlap too much. Uh, but I know that some of you have heard some of my sermons multiple times, and I do apologise for that. <laughs> but the favorite, my favourite wedding sermon that I've ever heard was actually a wedding sermon on this passage. I remember going to this wedding, and the passage was John 2, and they, they chose that passage because the preacher was saying how he wanted us to see that wherever Jesus is, there is joy. Jesus comes to the wedding because he wants to bless the wedding. He wants to bring joy to humanity. Wherever Jesus is, there is joy. And wine is a symbol of that. Psalm 104 that says that God gave us wine to gladden the heart of men. The rabbis of Israel used to say, without wine there is no joy. So wherever God brings wine, he brings joy. That's what he wants to give us as humanity. And I think it's really important for us to understand this. I said it last week and I say it pretty much every week. We have this deep-seated suspicion of God, a belief deep down inside us that God is actually a killjoy, that he doesn't want us to have fun or to be happy. He's He's the kind of God where if you're doing something and he walked into the room, you'd have to stop what you're doing and just kind of put it away. He wouldn't approve of that. He always is trying to stifle exciting things. That's the sense that we have. But here in this story, we see that that's nonsense, that Jesus comes to the party and then he fixes the party. He keeps it going. He sustains the party. 
He wants them to have wine because he wants them to have joy. That's the beautiful thing of our God. William Barclay says, now we can see what John is teaching us. Every story that John tells us, tells us not of something that Jesus did once and never did again, but of something which Jesus is forever and eternally doing. What John wants to see us here is that Jesus didn't just turn some water pots of water into wine. He wants us to see that whenever Jesus comes into your life, there comes a new quality, which is like turning water into wine. He says, without Jesus, life is dull and stale and flat. But when Jesus comes into your life, it becomes vivid and sparkling and exciting. Life with Jesus means a life of joy. God brings joy. And that's what John came to understand. See, John had a, a backstage pass to Jesus's magical ministry tour. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was probably Jesus's best friend. And so he was there throughout everything. He saw all of these miracles. He saw all of those moments behind the scenes when they're just having a meal and just hanging out. He saw everything. And so it's really interesting how he remembers it. In one of his other writings, 1 John 1, he says, that which was from the beginning, about, he's writing about Jesus, that which we've heard of, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. Jesus, God, was made manifest and we've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life. He's so excited by what he's experienced. I got to see God. I saw him. I touched him. I got to hang out with him. I saw what God was like. And then he says, verse 4, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. You know when you watch a really good movie and you really enjoy it, the joy is not complete until you tell other people about it. Oh, you would have loved it. It's an amazing movie. You watch a great footy game, whatever it is. The joy is not complete until other people know about it. And that's why John is saying here, he had this joy of God in his life, up close and personal, and he wants to celebrate it. He tells other people so that his joy may be complete. So if you're here, know that we can have joy with God. Wherever God is, he wants to bring joy. So if you're looking for joy, look for Jesus. So we see here the personality of Jesus, and then thirdly, we see the purpose of Jesus. I won't lie, it's a little bit awkward when Jesus is talking to his mum. He sounds very sharp. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Like it sounds a bit rude, doesn't it? And we can kind of shave off the edges of this a little bit. Uh, we know, for instance, that Jesus addressed his mother the same way when he was on the cross, and that was one of the most tender moments in his entire life. So I don't think he's meaning it disrespectfully or anything like that, or harshly. But there is something a bit abrupt about it, and that's deliberate. You see, Jesus wants his mother to understand that this is a big moment. His mother has brought him up and looked after him, and he knows that as soon as he starts on this journey, there's no turning back. As soon as he steps out and does this miracle, his ministry begins and he'll be stepping onto a path that will lead all the way to the cross. And he needs his mother to understand this. 
You notice that Jesus then says to his mother, my hour has not yet come. That phrase is that the the concept of the hour of Jesus comes up a lot in John's Gospel and it's always talking about uh, when Jesus will go to the cross. So Jesus is saying, I I know that as soon as I start on this path, I'm going to go all the way to the cross. You see, to bring joy into this world, Jesus had to take away all the things that rob us of joy. He had to take away our sin. Because this is the tragedy of human life. We were made to find joy in God, but we turn away and we look for joy somewhere else. We don't trust that he can bring joy. We imagine that he's a killjoy, and so we look elsewhere. But whenever we do that, we rob ourselves of joy. We do sin that brings us, that makes us regretful or ashamed. We feel guilt because we've hurt other people. We feel empty because we're searching for joy in all of these other places and we're not finding it. And so we need Jesus to come into our lives and transform them to bring new creation to our hearts. We need the creator to bring us the wine of his joy. That's what we need. And that's what Jesus came to do. And this story is a lovely picture of how he does it. You might have noticed where the water was in this story. It's in these big water jars. And we're told in verse 6 that these jars were there for the Jewish rites of purification. These rites of purification were a very important part of Judaism, the Jewish religion. Uh, Before every meal, they would uh, take some water from these jars and wash themselves, cleanse themselves. And they were doing this both because they were physically dirty, but it was also a symbol of how they were spiritually dirty. You know how when you do the wrong thing, you feel dirty, you feel uncomfortable, you wish you could be clean. And so these, uh, the Israelites would, would wash themselves, the Jews would wash themselves as a way of kind of pointing to the fact that they wanted to be washed clean of their sin. But the problem was they would have to keep doing this, wouldn't they? In fact, sometimes they would have to wash between every course of their meal, have you know, uh, entree and then wash yourself in the main course, wash yourself again. Because physically you're always getting dirty, but also spiritually you're always getting dirty. You are constantly needing to clean yourself again and again. It's never over. But now Jesus comes to provide something better. Jesus provides a proper cleansing, a full cleansing. The water is symbolic of of kind of the limitations of their sacrifices and all the Jewish rituals and so on. Jesus changes that into wine because he wants to bring a new way, a new dynamic. Hebrews 10 goes into this in beautiful detail. In verse 12, it says that Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. Jesus did it once so that we can be cleansed forever. As Amy said, God knows our sins, past, present and future, But Jesus has washed us clean of all of those things. And so verse 22 of Hebrews 10 says that our hearts can be sprinkled clean. God can cleanse us so that we don't need to sacrifice anymore. R. Kent Hughes writes, By performing this miracle in these stone urns, our Saviour was testifying that the old religious rituals were dead and that he was filling it with new life. 
Jesus came to cleanse us once and for all. And if you want that, Jesus offers it to you. I'm sure we've all felt the uncleanness of our sin, the frustration of those things, the the longing, the wish to be bright and clean before God, holy. Well, Jesus came to give us that. And he symbolised it in what we call the Lord's Supper. You might remember on the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested and sentenced to death, before all of that, he had a meal with his disciples, a meal of bread and of wine. And he explained what it all meant. Matthew 26, he says, he took a cup and when he'd given it thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So he was offering to the disciples and to us the opportunity to truly be cleansed, to receive the wine of God's grace, to receive the wine and find the joy of forgiveness and of freedom from sin. And all we need to do is take it, to recognise that we need it, we're sinners and we need the wine, we need the cleansing, and then to trust that it'll work, that when we receive Jesus, we'll be cleansed. And then as we do that, Jesus points us to the next great feast. So Jesus said to his disciples, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then he says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Just before he died, he is looking forward to the moment where he will rise again and that we will rise with him. Death is a reality. But Jesus promises that after death, there is a life with him forever. And in the scriptures, it's often talked about as a wedding feast. See, the first miracle of Jesus points to the ultimate miracle. Jesus began his ministry at a wedding, bringing joy. And he's going to complete his ministry as we gather with him to enjoy life with him, the joy of life with him forever. Jesus wants us to know that this will be like a wedding feast. And when we read about heaven in Revelation, it talks about the singing and the dancing and the celebration, the joy of the wedding feast. As God's people gather with him to celebrate life, where there'll be no more guilt, no shame, no sense of dirt, just God with us, the great wedding feast, and the wine will never run out. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this story, a story that points us to your power, but also just your love and your kindness. You came, Jesus, so that you could give us new life, so that we could have joy with you. We ask, Lord, that we might receive this and experience it afresh. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, Or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, 
please visit cityonahill.com.au.